When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. The season is underway. Wow. Our first in-season episode of the year. Now, I guess when, when I say the season is underway, that's true for the major leagues and AAA. Not yet as we record this for the levels below AAA. They get underway this week as well, so we're excited about that. I think that opening day ranked second in Jim and Jonathan's power rankings of the three uh, opening days last week when we did this. So we're going to talk about uh, some of the happenings at AAA over the course of the first few days of that season and the first week of the major league season. A lot of rookies to watch, a lot of big time prospects in the big leagues making their debuts. Uh, Jonathan has just returned from the National High School Invitational at the USA Baseball Complex out in Cary, North Carolina. Uh, We'll talk about that. And in particular, we are going to uh, have a conversation with Noble Meyer. Jonathan was able to sit down with him uh, at the NHSI. He is the top ranked high school pitching prospect in this year's draft class. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about the NHSI, some of the top performers out there, and uh, we want to talk about uh, a nice little matchup we had in college baseball, a really, really nice pitching matchup, uh, Skeens versus Dolander. Uh, And then we'll wrap up by answering a question from the mailbag, the return of the Lizard King is uh, what we're looking forward to there. All right, guys. Season is underway. Uh, as I said, you guys ranked the uh, the three opening days last week. I think you were both most excited for Major League Baseball opening day. And right off the bat, we, we had excitement from our top two prospects who were making their Major League debuts. Uh, of course, the, the top two prospects in baseball, Gunnar Henderson and Corbin Carroll, uh, they debuted last year but opened up the season on opening day uh, rosters again this year. But then we had Jordan Walker of the Cardinals and Anthony Volpe of uh, the Yankees, both uh, making their debuts on opening day. And uh, right off the bat, we had Walker, you know, lining a shot. Uh, He's had several 105 plus mile an hour exit velocities in the early going. He unleashed a hundred mile an hour throw from the outfield uh, which is the hardest throw ever recorded by StatCast by a Cardinals outfielder. Uh, we've seen him put down 29 feet per second sprint speeds, which is bordering on elite speed, which for a 6'5", 250-pound uh, guy is pretty impressive. And then Volpe has stolen three bases in the first three games, uh, which has happened only a handful of times in in baseball history. Five, uh, five times, Jason. Five times. Since there 1901. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, right at, right off the bat, we saw these guys creating excitement, and that's fun, right? I mean, we, we knew these guys were going to be exciting, and we got it right off the bat. Yeah, you know what, what's interesting to me? I mean, it, you know, it's, it's small sample size, but both these guys, uh, you know, a lot of times when prospects get to the big leagues, they try to do too much, especially if you're a hyped-up prospect, and these two guys are hyped up as much as anybody. And they're both just doing what got them there. I mean, they don't have eye-popping numbers. You know, Jordan Walker, who I think has maybe the most usable power of anybody on our top 100 prospects list, doesn't have a home run yet, just one extra base hit. But he's also only struck out one time in 17 plate appearances. And, and he's been the Jordan Walker we saw a ton of in the fall league. And we saw the same thing in, in spring training where he, he's 6'5", 250. He knows he doesn't have to try to hit home runs. The ball jumps off his bat. You know, like you were saying, Jason, he, he hits the ball very hard. And he just focuses on making contact and driving the ball from gap to gap. And the home runs are going to come. And then Volpe, who, who's only two for 11, but he's walked more than he's struck out. He 
you know, stole bases in his first three games. The last guy to do that in each of his first three big league games was Billy Hamilton 10 years ago. Um, and, you know, Volpe, you know, he's he's doing what impressed the Yankees in spring training. Like, if, if, if he's not getting pitches to hit, he draws walks and he makes things happen on the bases. And that's one of the oldest lineups in baseball. And I think his energy and just, you know, constant nonstop motor are, are going to be a nice addition to that lineup. And again, you know, it's not like those guys are, you know, nobody's off to a Stephen Kwan start or and nobody's hit, you know, three home runs or anything, but both those guys just seem like they're very comfortable in their own skin, which is, I think been our impression of them throughout their careers. And even though there's, you know, they're in the, the glare of the spotlight more than ever, they're, they're still comfortable and just doing what they do best. Yeah, I think it's important for Volpe especially to not worry about some of the counting stats and things like that. And, you know, I'm sure he's being reminded that he he's contributing in a number of ways. And it's it's so early that you don't, you're not going to extrapolate uh, too much. I, I thought about Jason asking you if you were worried about Jordan Walker's lack of power, but I think Jim just uh-huh. sort of covered it there. Yeah, it's, it's funny, right? Like he's this guy who since the draft has been known, you know, most for his power tool he's you know not not that he's you know not a good hitter his hit tool 55 but power tool of 65 we really haven't seen that power yet and you you have to think there's there's no way it doesn't come um and it's funny i just noticed um i said i called i said he was 65 250 earlier and i heard him during spring training say that he was 250 um so i i believe that but he'd been listed uh, on the site as six five two twenty, I believe, or maybe two twenty five, but now it's been updated just within the past few days. Must be he's listed as six six and two forty five. So uh, I don't know. Maybe he's he's on that uh, O'Neill O'Neill Cruz uh, <laughs> track where he was. Well, he, he he's still just twenty. A day. He, he could still be growing. He, he's still just twenty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I I I think it's going to be. And listen, we'll see what he settles into. But you know, if you look back at Aaron Judge's numbers in the minors, and I'm not making, you know, I don't like comps, but he did not hit for a ton of power in the minor leagues. I don't know that anyone knew he was going to hit 60 homers, but everyone knew there was power there. He didn't even hit a ton of for a ton of power in in college. Um, so I think there are some similarities there. Where you know, I, I think it's great. Let him establish the hit tool. And as as Jim pointed out, he's not tried to do too much, and he never has. Like that power is going to come. All right, first pipeline pop quiz of the day for you guys. Wow, early. Yep. Go. There are more to come. Uh, which rookie has the most total bases in the big leagues so far? I'll give you a hint. He is not on not on the top one hundred prospects. Yeah, I was going to say you wouldn't be you wouldn't be asking if it were somebody obvious. He's been hard to get out, man. Well, my boy, oh, James Altman. Come on now. <laughs> 11 total bases. Corbin Carroll has 10 so far. I was, uh, was going to guess Bryce Terang. Bryce Terang has nine. Alec Burleson has nine. Those, Your those terrible the joke there is it's not the first it time no I've joke. heard that. I, uh, when I was at a Fall League game and I saw James Altman play great that whole Fall League a couple of years ago, John DiAquisto, the former big league pitcher who's a clock operator now, a lot of the Fall wow. League games, made the exact same joke about like <laughs> what a terrible name it is for a hitter. And I was like, no, he's pretty good. And then he homered, I think, his first at bat that night. So and, and made like some spectacular cat. I think that was also one of the nights, Jonathan, where I saw Ezekiel Tovar. Like I saw all of his three good games in the fall. <laughs> the fall and that was one of them. And I think Outman robbed him at the wall late in the game. But uh, see, and but you yeah, say you have no memory. I can, well, I, I, James Outman is one of my favorite non-top 100 prospects. Um, and I, I guess he won't be Fair. a prospect for much longer. But just I'll, I'll give the short for you. But, you know, here's a guy who didn't even hit 250 in three years of college. And he had good tools. And the Dodgers felt like they could help him make some adjustments to his swing. And it took a couple of years. And it's it's taken. And he's been really good the last two or three years. Had one of the best seasons of anybody in AAA last year. And and now helping the Dodgers. I mean, he's he's super talented. He he's gonna be one of those guys who's you know gonna wind up being an all star down the road, and we're gonna be like, why wasn't that guy ever on the top one hundred prospects list? But he's he's talented. Is he close? I, I I know you guys you guys have put together sort of the next up list, and I uh, confess to having not looked at that yet. How is, dare you? Is he 
Is he? I know. I think there are some other Dodgers. That Dalton Rushing's ahead of him ahead on our of Dodgers him. list, yeah. and, and and Altman yeah. is is twenty or he's going to be twenty six in May, so he's he's older, you know, between the pandemic and being a college guy and and all that. So my my guess is he'd probably graduate before we got to him. Although I did have somebody within the Dodgers organization make the point, and they weren't bagging on Michael Bush, who is on our top one hundred prospects list, but they're like, look, I mean, they had basically the same year in AAA. You can argue Outman's year was better, and he brings a ton more base running and defensive value. Mm, same like, age. You know, Outman might be better than Michael Bush. And I was like, huh, I hadn't really thought about that. Um, but, you know, this guy was making a case. He wasn't, it wasn't like this guy was anti Michael Bush, but Michael Bush, you know, has that first round pedigree and, you know, he'll be 26 later in the year. I mean, he's what, about half a, half a year younger than Outman. But, you know, he plays second base. He's probably a fringy second baseman, which is an accomplishment in itself because nobody really thought he could play second. But it's, yeah, I mean, I think, I think Outman's flown under the radar too because he, he wasn't a high pedigree guy and he really didn't start taking off till, I guess it was, you know, the second half of 2020. I mean, I mean, 2021, um, and you know, and then got going. But he's he's a really talented player. Like that's what everybody, you know, I'm sure the other teams, NL West, are saying this is great. We really need the Dodgers, you know, finding, you know, turning a seventh rounder into a a very good big league. Right. Earlier mentioned that uh, Volpe is three for three in stolen bases, as is Corbin Carroll. Pipeline pop quiz number two. Carroll has two of the 15 fastest sprint speeds recorded so far this year, which is no surprise. Um, Two other players have two or more. Trey Turner has the first and third fastest sprint speeds recorded this year. Who has, who has the most of of the top 15 sprint speeds? One player has four of them. And it's a prospect. It is not a, not a prospect, but he recently was. Uh, I was going to say, do you, do you understand as of last year, of this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> as of last year, and the, I think the reason it's pertinent is because he was one of, if not the, top prospect in baseball. Not exactly known for, and I don't think he's most known for his, his blazing speed. Oh, Julio Rodriguez? No, Bobby Witt Jr. Bobby Witt Jr.? Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Garrett Mitchell also has uh, three of the top. Yeah, 31 sprint speeds recorded so far. So I thought you were going to really impress us and tell us it was Adley Rutschman. I was going to be like, what? <laughs> no, <laughs> you got, you guys got, you guys got bagged on a little bit for uh, Adley's uh, run, run grade. If I remember correctly, especially when he came out and his first hit, his first hit was a triple and he, I think had pretty decent sprint speed. And yeah, we, we got some, uh, we got some people yapping about his, I, I hope that came up his, in Jonathan's review. You. <laughs> you remember what Adley's uh, run grade was? I think it was pretty low. I can't imagine it was lower than like a 40. I thought I made him a 40, but maybe I didn't. No. And the thing is that's tough is like there's so many different ways to measure speed. Like like when you're at the ballpark, the only real way you can measure speed, the only time you get the guy running in a straight line all out, and it's not always all out, is home to first. Oh, 30. Yeah, and home to mm. first – yeah, terrible, Jonathan. Home to first. <laughs> you should make a twenty-five thousand dollar donation to Adley's favorite charity or something. But, uh, um, but like you know, the home to first time isn't necessarily a real reflective, uh, you know, measurement of a guy's speed because guys get quicker. There's guys who have a quick first step. There's guys who have swings that take them toward first base quickly. There's other guys who have big swings that slow them down coming out of the box and they're faster underway. Like the, the speed scores, I, I think in general are a mess. Yeah, it's good. I mean, it's good when these guys get to the big leagues, and now we we see it in AAA, and we have stat cast on these guys, and you can you know get some some actual data on sprint speeds, and you know, not just home to first times, but you know, you can see home to second, home to third times where they're actually going all out on doubles and triples, and easier to have some real uh, data to look at there. I think Miguel Vargas of the Dodgers, who's another guy who's not considered very fast, when he made his big league debut last year. That's the I, one, right? I think his sprint speeds were in like the 92nd percentile. <laughs> and so it's like, what's going on here? So it's yeah. just like you you can get totally different measurements of how fast a guy is depending on how you're doing it. On the topic of speed, pipeline pop quiz number three. Man. Sandra Bullock. Uh, very nice. I see what you did there. What's the overall success rate so far 
stolen bases in the big leagues. 84%. Oh, I read it this wait morning. A, oh, really? I did. I was reading an article. Wow, like somebody's, somebody's one great. of these newsletters you get in the morning, somebody had 84%. So. That's it. And do you know how many total attempts there have been? It seems we're, like around 100. We're, exa- yeah, we're exactly at 100. 84 for 100. Even I could do that math. Rookies are a perfect 14 for 14 in stolen bases. I mean, have we gone too far? Is it too no. easy to steal bases now? Well, we're four games into the season, too. Like, yeah, so I, 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 think you, if, I think it could be one of these you things. You think adjustments will be made? Yeah, like, like, like teams are going to have to address this more than they realized. Um, now, do you yeah. think the prospects are having that much success because they've played with these newfangled rules before? Yeah, I mean, I guess I think the prospects we're running are also just... Fast. Yeah, right. <laughs> Carol and Volpe. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's move. Let's move down a notch to AAA. Uh, we've only had as as we're recording this. Uh, they've only played three games so far. Uh, but early on, um, oh, an, another pipeline pop quiz. Who leads uh, the minors or AAA in total bases among ranked? prospects right now brett Beatty, a fine guess he's tied for second with another guy that you might guess uh you know i, I was looking at this earlier i, I know the Is, was this I in was, your newsletter no no but i was looking at it when we were doing pr- podcast prep former former top 100 prospect right yep yep like jonathan again ranked criminally low jonathan terrible job by you uh number 17 on your rockies list nolan jones Yep, Nolan Jones. How could you not see this coming? I love Nolan Jones. I, yeah. He's a good interview. I remember talking hockey with him because he was Lunch a hockey player. In his Cleveland. Brother was a goalie. Player. He's a good guy. But yep. um, but anyway, I was looking at it earlier, so Nolan Jones. Is there uh, – do we have a resurgence here? Based on three games? He's, he's, he's on <laughs> sure. pace for 120 homer season right? in Triple yeah. A. It's not a hitter-friendly place. I, 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 I will say – At home, by the way. You know, it's, I always had him in the Guardian system, and I do think the power is real. I do think the patience is real. Um, and, you know, they had a bunch of young players, and it just didn't come together for him in Cleveland. I, I think he's a perfect change of scenery guy. Yep. Perfect guy for the Rockies to take a chance on and see what he could – I mean, the, the power is real. It's just going to be consistency. I don't think he's ever going to be a huge, you know, high average guy, but I do think he'll draw walks. So, um yeah, we do. When we do market adjustments, we'll have to run Nolan Jones back up the list. We'll see. Yeah, you you guessed Beatty. He's tied for second with Bo Naylor, and then Soderstrom has eleven total bases. Samad Taylor has eleven total bases. Soderstrom hit a massive home run over the weekend, four hundred and sixty-six feet. I think the exit velocity was one hundred and thirteen point five miles an hour, something like that. Um, Beatty has had several of the hardest hit balls. Um, at triple a so far and Beatty, i know jim you were none too pleased that he <laughs> he didn't start the year in the big leagues and i mean you know i know the Mets said that he needed to check off some boxes and he seemed well, no, to no 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 the mets the mets cited what ticked me i don't off think that was their, their excuse was ridiculous they started ticking off how many games nolan arenado and austin riley played in the minors without even uh, you know adjusting for the fact that brett Beatty had the pandemic year but i mean the guy should be on the Mets. Um, it, it, it's, 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 it's somewhat antiquated thinking, but he had options remaining. Other guys didn't. So we don't want to, you know, possibly lose like a four, a type player instead of playing Brett Beatty, who can hit. Um, I, I will not forgive the Mets for that one. It's <laughs> foolish. Brett Beatty should be in the big leagues. Um, he should be in the big leagues. That's all I have to say. Made a nice play at third the other day. He's, he's looked good all around. Uh, any anyone else in the pitching? Pitching has been rough early on for for ranked prospects. I, I just I, I do have one more thing to say. I was wrong. Eduardo Escobar is one for sixteen in the big leagues. I know it's small sample size. I believe Brett Beatty could go one for sixteen in the big leagues also <laughs> and strike out nearly half his at bats if that's what the Mets are looking. We're already starting to get questions about when Beatty's going to get called up and oh yeah, you know, So anyway, sorry. I'll stop uh, stumping for for Brett Beatty now. 
on on the other side of the ball, uh, highest ranked, just just about every ranked prospect, uh, first time out had a rough go. Uh, Grayson, Taj, Gavin Stone, Brandon Fott. He, Fott kind of looked like he was picking up right where he left off last year when he struck out 218 batters, most in 21 years in the minors, and struck out three in the first inning. Uh, I think ended up with seven over four or five innings, whatever it was. But three and two thirds. Is that what it, three and two thirds? Yep. Yikes. Uh, gave up four home runs. Um, but a few good outings. Uh, Matt Liebertor, Matthew Liebertor, uh, Silseth, and then one in the big leagues and Johnny Burrito, um, who looked good. Um, yeah, I mean, Liebertor was, I think he touched 99, maybe. It, it's kind of funny with him because the, it feels like he's been around forever. It does. He's, 23 like I, you know i know the stuff backed up i hadn't seen what the the velo was in the start again in one start um but uh certainly an encouraging beginning I, you know I, i'm still on board with him i, I think he's going to be a big league starter uh, i think he got rushed a little bit but you know, he's 23 uh, and pitched really well and then chase silseth the Angels, the first guy from the 2021 draft to make it to the big leagues at all, part of the Angels, uh, you know, all pitching draft. Like, good to see him because he got roughed up when he was in the big leagues last year, but was dominant in double A. Now, you know, triple A, and he's kind of doing the same thing that he, he did. He's throwing a lot of strikes. The stuff has always been good, um, but the command has been so much better. And he's added a cutter, and he's only 22. Uh, so, you know, there's still plenty of time for both of those guys, even though it, for, you know, different times and different reasons, you know, calls up to the big leagues. But, you know, Libertad, there's definite fatigue. But, uh, you know, I still think he can figure it out. When I was in Cardinals camp, they were very enthused by how Libertor was pitching this spring. He was throwing harder. And they just thought he was pitching with more assertiveness. You know, I think when he got knocked around in AAA, uh, you know, he's been knocked around in AAA for two years and he got knocked around in the big leagues and he'd fall behind the count. You know, like I don't think he trusted a lot of pitches from time to the Cardinals beyond that curveball that he's always had. And they just liked the way he was attacking hitters more. He's going after guys with his fastball. He's throwing a little bit harder. He's using his slider a little bit more to give guys a, a harder, you know, look with the breaking ball. So, you know, we'll, we'll see if he bounces back. It's, it's weird. Like, it, it's weird. It feels weird not having him on the top 100 prospects list because I think he was pretty much a mainstay on that list since they, they drafted him back in 2018. Um, but he's a guy who, who they were very encouraged by how he looked this spring. All right. Let's take a break, come back, and listen to Jonathan's interview with the top-ranked high school pitching prospect in this year's draft class, Noble Meyer. That's coming up next on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Jonathan Mayo here in Cary, North Carolina, USA Baseball's National Training Complex, and the National High School Invitational is is winding down uh, here, according to this, on a Friday when they decide to stack up 15 games in one day. I'm here with, uh, most people believe, is the top high school arm in this year's draft class, Noble Meyer. Noble, thanks for, for taking some time. Of course, thank you. So... First and foremost, this is obviously uh, a team event. Uh, I know things probably haven't gone exactly the way you guys would have hoped, but as someone who's been here before for more you know, on the individual showcase side, mm. how much fun has it been to just be at this facility and compete with the guys that you compete with all year? I mean, it's awesome. I mean, this is a trip we've been looking forward to and really like bonded over these games together. I mean, we, we win together, we lose together, gotten a lot closer. Um, yeah, it is It is a lot different from the event like PDP where you're kind of there for yourself. You get matched with a bunch of players you've never met before, but this is like you have your whole family together. And you have a lot more support in the stands. There's a little more electricity here, I think, than there is over the summer. Absolutely, yeah. Um, are there things that you think that 
you guys collectively took from here, you know, even if it doesn't show up in the win column, that you can take back to your to your schedule when you're when, when you're back home? Um, I think really competing. Um, I mean, we have a very, very, very good team. And to see some great competition like this really showing us how how to how to compete, especially when we're losing. Like, I mean, that's not something that happens to us often. Um, really understanding how to climb back and really fight to win a game. I think, you, you know, when you learn to lose as a team, that usually can mean some, some special things down the road. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, learning what losing feels like really can help us propel to not want to lose anymore, I guess. <laughs> um, we talked a little bit after your, you know, your start on, when was that? Wednesday? Wednesday. Yeah. Wednesday. The days blur together here. Um, and uh, obviously, personally, you threw extremely well. You had a little time to reflect now a couple days later as opposed to right after the game when we spoke the first time. What were some of your takeaways from, from your start against Calvary Christian? Um, I mean, that's a game that I felt like I come out of that seventh inning and I never wanted to win a game more than that. Uh, I mean, tried to build up my team and we had three, let up three runs in the six. It's just, I mean, errors happen. Things things are going to go that way. But, I mean, I come back in. I'm firing my team up. I start off the bottom of the six, the walk, get on base, try to start a rally. So what? I mean, it's that's a great team on the other end, too. I know Marotis threw heck of a game, shut that out. Dietz with an amazing outing. I mean, that's quality baseball versus quality baseball. So I think... All in all, that's a great game, both sides. You told me that you felt that all of your stuff w was was working pretty well. The one thing that you said, um, and I get the sense that you can be pretty self-critical, just, you know, just was, a little bit, yeah. was your was your fastball command. Um, is there, you know, obviously it wasn't terrible. I yeah. mean, you look, people look at the stat line, they're going to be yeah. like, what is he talking about? But like, what, what did you think, you know, what were you thinking that was quite often and what, was there any particular reason for it? I mean, looking back, I mean, I threw out, what, 101 pitches through seven innings. That's about 15 pitches per inning-ish, a little more than that. Yeah. That's, that's really good. Um, but yeah, a little, little self-critical on that. I think first inning, didn't get a couple inside calls and then just worked mostly outside and up a little farther towards the plate on the inside pitches, I guess. Um, I maybe just had a memory of missing one or two pretty bad and kind of stuck with me. But I think I, I spotted a fastball as well and where I wanted to. Sliders were outside corner. Curveballs all stayed competitive. I think it was quality pitch after quality pitch. I want to talk about the, the breaking balls in, in a little bit. One thing you also mentioned to me was that you felt the life on your fastball was good. Is that something that you felt was a, an area that you needed to to address a little bit? Because I, you know, I have heard from scouts. Obviously, fastball velocity wise, mm -hmm. plenty good, especially for your age, projection, things like that. Uh, but how it's going to play at the next level is that something that you've recognized that you need to address a little bit? Um, kind of. Little minor change that I made uh, this off season. I had a little issue with cutting the ball. And it really just stemmed from uh, my initial initial movement with my leg kick and just starting to drift. Arm gets a little weight around the ball. Um, I was really focused on keeping that back leg stacked and then staying on top of the ball. Really get that extra ride and carry on the, on the fastball. I got a lot more swings and misses than I normally do. Um, yeah, and then having that play that well up really expands the arsenal with slider and curveball. Allows me to play off that more. All right, let's talk about the two breaking balls. I, mean, I saw you over the summer. Mm -hmm. I don't think you were throwing the curve. Not at all. Right. Um, you said it was something that you used to throw, like because I guess every kid, when they mm -hmm. first learn a breaking ball, yep. they're going to learn learn a curveball. Take me through the sort of the process of adding that in mm -hmm. because, you know, fastball, slider, changeup, all pretty good pitches. Mm -hmm. Sure, let's add a fourth one when, you, you know, you're, you're a high school senior. You know, what was the decision-making behind that? Um... So when I was about a sophomore, I was strictly fastball curve and then a probably below average changeup. And then I realized slider would probably fit my arm slot better and I found a grip that was comfortable to me. It's a little unorthodox. Um, and then I just worked slider, fastball, and then occasional change, so a little under below average. And my f primary focus was to gotta, I gotta get that changeup better because that's gotta 
that'll be my weapon against lefties. Breaks away from them. On maybe Sunday, I'll be against or good against righties too. But as I developed, I realized I'd only have two pitches versus each side, and that's like you can eliminate one if one's off, and then they're just sitting on one pitch. And I realized I can go back to that curveball grip. It's a little, it's a little different than what it used to be, but I mean, I spin it really well. Feels comfortable. Worked all off season to really get that super comfortable in my hand, be able to land it, be able to spike it, and I think it's made really big progress. And so really good pitch right now it's too bad this is uh, an audio medium because it keeps showing me the grip (laughs) but i think that you know the one fear you know with a young pitcher is when you start throwing distinct breaking balls that you know they can blend together things that is is that has that happened to you at all is that something that you've been pretty pleased that you've been able to keep separate i know the other night those were two very distinct pitches Mm -hmm. there's some days in some bullpens where i'll see that the break on both pitches are Pretty, or the uh, difference between the break on both pitches is pretty minimal, but um, usually I'm able to keep my slider around 13, 14 inches of horizontal and zero inches of vert, so that's a, pretty much a sweeper. And the curveball usually is around like 14 and 15, respectively, um, more of like a, turns into kind of a sweeper, but it's a separate pitch in itself. And the speed differential, too, is different, too. Yeah. Now, and people can't see this, but I'm, I'm assuming because of what you showed me, you threw a circle change? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, is there any fear that, like, all right, I've added this curveball in now. Like, we talked about you only, you only threw two change-ups uh, the other day. Like, you know you're going to need that change-up. Mm-hmm. Is there a fear that, like, you're not going to work on that enough because you have the, the you know, three other pitches? Um, no. I I mean, fastball, slider, curveball, I mean, that's what works in games typically. And then I'll bring out the changeup when I face lefties. But in bullpens, behind the scenes, like, I'm heavy changeups, working that all the time. Because I think pronation, like, keeping that pronation, then can't really see it. But <laughs> keeping the pronation is huge, uh, really expands, like, comes from a forearm mobility and wrist mobility allows you to work both ways supination and pronation um but i mean i probably threw around 45 percent change-ups in my bullpens um and to me this is fascinating i feel like this has happened more and more and you probably talk to other pitchers at your level but your combination of talking about data um talking about sort of the the sort of biomechanics of, of what you do when was there a certain point that you sort of recognized that your brain can take in all that information. I would imagine sometimes, like, you have to shut that off and just go and throw um, with all that information to back mm-hmm. you up. I mean, I'm a child of two engineers, so it's kind of woven into my brain. But um, I, when I was a freshman, I used to throw my fastball almost like a splitter, like my pointer finger and uh, middle finger were both very far apart. And I got on, like, a high-speed camera, got on Rapsodo, all that. And that's when I, like, really learned okay this is super interesting to me like and this is also something i can use to like advance my play or advance my game um and i just kind of fell in love with it from there and like i study all that like pitching ninja um stuff like all those kind of things track man rap soto like i'll watch all the spin rates and just kind of fell in love with it and are, do you have to turn your brain off sometimes? Because if you're, you know, sometimes guys who are, you know, kind of cerebral mm-hmm. uh, think too much on the man. Um, what's really helped me is I just think of one thing at a time. Usually that stems into uh, keeping my mechanics all right. Like it changes from time to time. Like most recently, my main focus is keep my leg, keep my back leg planted, don't let myself drift, and allow myself to give myself time my mechanics to get my arm up right and release from there but like this past summer it was just getting my hand separate getting to a stronger position earlier getting a 90 degree pointing up as uh, quick as i quick as i can in my delivery um but i mean when i'm in bullpens i'll think about all these stats and spin rates and i try to see when i change a little tiny thing what changes on the day uh, on the data and work from that but when i get in game it's just i'm focused on winning the game and that really that's it now you are not the first big right-hander to come from jesuit who's mm-hmm. you know a first round killer mick abel is he like is he a role model is there like a shrine to him do you want to be better than him tell me like the fact that he's gone through what you're hopefully about to go through how how is that 
helped you in this process? Um, so unfortunately, uh, he was a senior in my freshman year. That was the COVID year, and I didn't really get to see him much at all. Right. Uh, but, I mean, there's a lot of admiration for, like, being the same high school, big righty, kind of same path I'm taking. Um, I mean, I followed pretty much every step. It was my early career. It's cool to see him. I mean, same pitching coach and Kevin Gunderson. Um, yeah, I love checking out all the starts. It's, yeah. we got to get the two of you together to talk pitching. Maybe another podcast uh, episode <laughs> will Sounds make good. that happen. Um, I know that you're very focused on helping your team win games and you focus on the mound, which is, is the right thing to do, and you shut out the scouts. Do you allow yourself in quiet moments to think about the draft at all? I mean, from time to time, I'm really focused on winning a state championship with my team. Uh, that's my first priority. But I mean, I, every once in a while, I'll think of like, uh, where am I? Where am I faring in like this this week's uh, draft board, or like, what do scouts think of me? Just things like things like that. But I never dwell on it too much. Someone who clearly pays attention, you know, the thing with with high school pitching, especially high school right-handers, it's the high risk, high reward. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that helps you sort of put it out of your mind because you could be the best high school arm, and that's not automatically going to mean you're going to go where you should because right. there are some teams that are just afraid of that sort of demographic. I mean, that's always on my mind. I mean, it comes up in every meeting that I've talked with uh, with scouts, um, but I feel as if that uh, risk all comes from injury or maybe they don't play as well as they were projected to, but I feel like I have the stats and the uh, mentality and the kind of the, the need to become the best that I possibly can. I think that it's hard to fail when I have all those on my side. All right, Noble, this has been great. Thanks for having a conversation. Good luck in your last game, and we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Thank you. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline podcast. Jim Callis, Jonathan Mayo, I'm Jason Ratliff. Thanks to Noble Meyer for taking the time to talk to Jonathan. And uh, he was one of many players that you saw at the NHSI, Jonathan, and uh, the most impressive. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think it's always fun. First of all, I, I love this event, um, mostly because, I mean, Jim and I have both gone to showcases and and things of that nature, but the, this is a team oriented event, you know, and it's rare for us. And I, you know, to see these players in, in, you know, in a sort of team setting and it's great for scouts because sure they'll go and they'll see Noble Meyer pitching, you know, in Portland and uh, they'll see, you know, some of these other guys in Southern California, you know, against good competition in California but they don't necessarily get to see them in this kind of environment where it's like constant, really good competition and the stakes are high. This is a, you know, you, you have to win four games to win the title and to, to see how they rise to the occasion with that kind of spotlight is, is great. And with Noble Meyer, it was one of those situations where he came in as the best draft prospect at the event and he performed like the best draft prospect at the event. I mean, he, he was Really, really good. Uh, you know, is consistently ninety five, ninety six, and you know the the stuff was just very, very good. Is this the ideal scenario to see a a pitching prospect? Because you you have you just touched on this, but the fact that you know it's not a showcase where you're going to see a bunch of guys go one inning and air it out, and you know just pitch an inning, and it, it is, and in this case with Meyer. In the specific case, he was facing, as you noted in in the story on the top uh, performers from the tournament, a, a powerhouse in Calvary Christian. Um, so you're seeing him against, as you said, good competition and over more of an extended period than just coming out and throwing one inning. Yeah, even like PDP League uh, or you know, events like that where you may get see a guy for three innings, that's the most. So, yeah, seeing him go seven... He was still throwing 95 in the seventh inning. Uh, the 
the breaking stuff. He's got a newer curveball along with the slider. He, he threw 26 of them with RPM north of 3,000. Um, it's legit, legit stuff. He only threw a couple of change-ups, but he knows that he needs to keep working on it, and he does all the time. His knowledge, if you can tell from the interview, um, his... Uh, you know his knowledge of what he needs to do is is pretty pretty amazing. He struck out ten. They did not barrel him up at all. And in fact, uh, you know, in the interview, sort of uh, when I talked to him after after his start, you know, it, I thought it was a very telling. They had one inning where uh, they had loaded the bases. They they bunted him to death. I think they tried to bunt three times, including a bases loaded squeeze kind of situation that didn't work because they knew, you know, they just were not getting good swings and he came out the next inning and struck out the side. It, it was a statement inning. I thought um, where he was like, all right, you know um, yeah, I think if, if there's any small knock, you know, I'm talking to scouts afterwards, there's, you know, uh, a little concern about how the fastball will play. He is continuing to work on the life of his fastball, so it's clear that it's something that he knows he needs to adjust. Um, but I'm not, I'm not too worried about it. You know, he's projectable. There's more in the tank. I think that uh, it will continue to come. And again, again, this is probably a better team he faced than any team he's going to face back home in Oregon. How does uh, how does he compare to some of the recent top ranked? high school pitching prospects uh, over the past several draft classes. Looking back uh, last year, Brock Porter was the top ranked high school pitching prospect at number 11, although Dylan Lesko was going into the season, then uh, missed the season, uh, ended up a few spots behind Porter at 14. Jackson Job in 2021 was number seven overall. Mick Abel, number 11, Matt Allen, number 13, 2019. And then back to Matthew Liebertor. Uh, highest ranked high school pitching prospect in, in several years was number four overall. Uh, and uh, Myers number 16 on, on this year's list. But of course, you know, those rankings are sort of relative. Um, so kind of curious how he matches up to these other guys. Well, I have a little sort of recency bias because I just saw Meyer, but, you know, in talking to uh, some of the teams that were there, uh, you know, couldn't not come away impressed by how he threw. We had Meyer at 16 when we did our top 100 in December. And I get the sense that he's probably going to be somewhere in that vicinity again when we, when we re-rank. Now, Jim and I haven't gotten our heads together or figured that out, but talking to, you know, some teams there, they felt that he sort of belonged in that range now teams will sometimes sort of think are thinking about what well, where will he go in the draft as opposed to ranking purely based on talent but i did have the, at least one team that picks in the top 10 that said they wouldn't consider him there um but from a talent standpoint i probably put him somewhere in the 11 to 16 range which is which is where he is now again as you said it's relative to the draft class you know, Lesko got hurt, you know, otherwise he would have been much higher. So I wouldn't put him there, but I don't know. It's somewhat comparable to Brock Porter, um, you know, somewhere in that vicinity, I would, I would think um, maybe not quite as overpowering stuff, but his feel for pitching and his knowledge of what he needs to do and the projectability all work in his favor. Yeah, I think that's well said, Jonathan. I mean, it, it seems like, and we're going to obviously drill down very deep, like we had him ranked as the top high school pitcher in the draft back in December, you know, right there with Charlie Soto and Thomas White. I think we're we're all in the same area. I, I think it just and again, more from casual conversations, I think he's the best high school pitcher in the draft. I mean, if the draft, like you know, based on right now, I, I think he clearly is the best high school pitcher in the draft. But like you said, I don't think he's that guy who people are like, oh, we might have to take this guy in the top five or ten picks. He's more of that that mid first round type. All right, Jonathan, uh, tell us about some more names from the NHSI that we should know about. Some guys who stood out. 
Yeah, I think the sort of a couple of hitters uh, who I had next on the list are, are the ones that kind of stood out the most. Um, one whom's not on our top 100, but whose name had come up when we were doing the list. And that's Ralphie Velasquez from Huntington Beach. And they won, they won the NHS at HSI title. Um, this is the same high school that Nick Prado and Hagen Danner uh, came from, and they they had won the title back in 2016. Uh, he was very impressive with the bat. Uh, you know, the jury is still out as to where he plays. Um, depending on who I talked to, you know, they they wouldn't let him catch at all. I I did have enough people who said he showed enough where you'd send him out and let him catch and see what happens. But I think the bat is going to carry him. He, he went six for eight over his first two games and drove in five runs, hit the ball extremely hard consistently. <clears throat> it's funny. I was thinking about him when we were talking about Adley Rushman and, and, and the run grade because Velasquez is not present himself as like a super athletic catcher. He's kind of big, but he tripled uh, in the NHSI and he ran very well. And it was noticed by by scouts in in, in running out the triple. You know, he's he's never going to be a speedster, but there may be a little more athleticism in there than people give him credit for. Uh, he made a couple of nice plays at first base when he played there those couple of games, but it's that bad. It's left-handed, good approach at the plate, and hits the ball hard. There's going to be some good power there. And then the other guy who was on our list is Trent Caraway from Jay Sarah, made also made it to the to the championship and. Uh, you know, he, he went seven for 16 overall, had a couple of doubles in the championship game. Uh, he, he consistently barreled up the baseball. Also, a lot of top exit velocities over, over the course of time. Uh, I'll play third base. He's one of those guys, Jim, uh, who's going to get dinged. And we don't need to get on our soapboxes now, but he's old for the class. So that's one of those, you know, that, that Jim and I like to, rant about that from time to time uh but that will be something people will be watching carefully because he, he he'll be uh 19 by the time you know when the draft comes around and and that for some teams models but uh i felt the bat really really played he doesn't try to do too much both he and velasquez i think stood out the most uh because f- with maybe one or two small exceptions they never got outside of what their game plan was at the plate and never tried to, you know, let their swings get too big or anything like that. And that, that, that impressed me a lot. You know, I was, I was just noticing, um, going back to Meyer real quick, uh, and him being the top ranked high school pitcher in the class at number 16. And we've only had one high school pitcher ranked in the top 10 over the past one, two, three, four, five draft classes. That was Jackson Job at number seven. And Leska would have been. Leska would have until right. he was yep. until he got hurt. Yeah, would have, but wasn't. Uh, the previous five draft classes, there were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight high school pitchers ranked in the top ten. Is this uh, is this a, something of a trend? Is this uh, a r- response to you know some of these guys? not panning out and high school pitchers sliding down the ranks. What, what, what's going on here? I feel like it's an adjustment. I don't think we've consciously said, Hey, let's stop ranking high school pitchers high, but maybe we've become more cognizant of, I do think that's the riskiest demographic just because pitchers get hurt and the high school guys are obviously further away from the big leagues and the college guys are, you know, we've had guys, we were like Riley Pint who didn't pan out. Um, you know, he's, he's still, you know, making a still go pitching. of it. Yeah. I know he's still yeah. making a go. And Jay Groom, <laughs> you know, was the number, like number one on our list one year. And it's just pitching's hard. And, and like, again, I don't think we, I, I know we aren't cognizantly saying, okay, let's just, you know, we have the same questions about the overall top 100 list, how there's a lot of hitters at the top. I just think when you fully believe in a hitter, it's easier to rank that guy over a pitcher you fully believe in, if that makes sense. Or at least that's how I feel personally. Yeah, I mean, some some of the guys uh, from those five draft classes from 2014 to to 18 who were ranked in the top 10, Brady Aiken, number one in 2014. Tuki Toussaint was number eight in that same class. Highest uh, ranked pitcher in that 2016 class. You mentioned Jim J. Groom and Pint. Uh, Braxton Garrett was number 10. 
Hunter Green was number one in 2017. Mackenzie Gore, number four in 2017. So yeah, kind of a mixed bag there. All right, let's uh, let's talk some more draft, but let's switch to the college ranks. We had an absolute dandy of a pitching matchup, a doozy. What do you prefer, doozy or which is better, a doozy or a dandy dandy matchup? Dandy, I, think. I like dandy. I like dandy. Really? Yes, huh. doozy has a slight like almost negative, negative connotation, connotation to it. Yeah. All right, uh, but yeah, LSU Tennessee game just loaded with top draft prospects and and. Got a Friday night matchup between Skeens and Dolander. Thursday night. Thursday night. Oh, that's right. Was it Thursday night? Okay. It, was. Yeah, I w- it was. I was joking because, uh, you know, a lot of people, all of the scouting industry, not all of it, there are a ton of people at the NHSI for the <clears throat> first day on Wednesday, that Noble Meyer versus Hunter Dietz matchup. Uh, Hunter Dietz was the lefty for Calvary Christian. And I was saying that USA Baseball should provide a, a shuttle bus to the airport because a ton of people went from there to that LSU Tennessee matchup on Thursday. Yeah. And, uh, Skeens was Skeens again, um, got the, the better of that matchup. And, uh, at this point, would, would you say that he has bypassed Dolander as the, the top pitching prospect in the class? Yeah, I think that's fair. And it's interesting because I think what we saw in that game is what we've seen from those guys most of the year. You know, they both kind of showed, what they've shown pretty much all spring. And I know coming into the year, I, I used the line several times about how Dolander is probably the best p- college pitching prospect since Garrett Cole or Steven Strasburg, you know, 10, 12 years ago. And Skeens has passed him. And, and you, you saw why. I, I still think Dolander is the number two pitcher and is going to go pretty high. But but if you, you know, why, anybody who saw the game, you know, I, Dolander, I mean, Skeens came out, he averaged, you know, he went seven innings, he averaged, you know, 98.6 miles an hour in the fastball. Um, I think he was up to 101 or 102. Um, he had 31% swing and miss rate with fastball, which is exceptional. He doesn't just throw it hard. He has a lot of carry to it. And, you know, people have talked about in the fall, and one of the reasons we put Skeens at number four on our list was how good the slider had become. You know, he's working with Wes Johnson, who, you know, might be the best pitching coach in college baseball. I know LSU believes he is, who the Twins had made a big deal out of hiring, and then LSU hired him away from the Twins. So, like, Wes Johnson, very highly regarded. And Skeens' slider was – ridiculous i mean he 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 it was interesting because he dominated the volunteers with his fastball he threw about 65 percent fastballs and he only threw 18 sliders but he got nine swings eight swings and misses on the slider he was averaging 86 guys like made guys look really bad he worked in a changeup that looked pretty good threw a handful of curveballs but he's been pretty much doing this every time out And, and you know he's got you know, crazy stats. He, he leads the nation with 83 strikeouts. He's got a 0.81 ERA. He's walked eight guys and given up, I think, four runs in 44 and a third innings. Um, hitters are hitting 127 against him. It's, it's crazy stats. And then, you know, Dolander, what we saw for Tennessee was he was he was good, but he just it, it was kind of like what I saw at the, at the beginning of the year when he went four and two thirds against Arizona at the uh, Desert Invitational. Where he's been good, but he hasn't been great, and he hasn't kicked his game up another notch. You know, he averaged ninety six and a half miles an hour with the fastball. There was good swing and miss to it, not as much as Skeens. The slider, which was a, a wipeout pitch for a lot of last year for Dolander, he threw it hard. He averaged eighty eight miles an hour with the slider, but only got two swings and misses with it. It it, it has not been as dominant. It's been merely good. It hasn't been a dominant slider. He threw a couple changeups and. And, and mixed in a couple curveballs as well. The command, which was really sharp last year, was just okay. He he walked three, and he I think he went four and two thirds in this one, if I remember correctly. Again, threw eighty nine pitches, but yeah, I mean, if and, and like I said, I mean, the thing was great if you watched that game was you got to see uh, exactly these guys have been doing this all year, both of them. This wasn't like you saw Paul Skeens at his best or Dolander at his worst or vice versa. You got to see what guys have seen all spring. So. I still think Dolander, I still think Dolander's the second college pitcher taken. He's clearly number two, but there's no, there's no question. Skeens has passed him. And you still think that Dylan Cruz is the number one overall pick, or the or the number one overall draft prospect? I should say there's a difference. Well, we're talking to us to all you guys, and I'll throw in my two cents, and then Jonathan can can throw in his. But like, you know, no team's ever had the top two picks in a draft. The closest it's ever happened was in 1978. Arizona State had Bob Horner go one and Hubie Brooks go three. 
in 2011, UCLA had Garrett Cole go one and Trevor Bauer went three. But, you know, I mentioned last week how every time I look at Dylan Cruz, his, his batting average goes up, which is kind of hard. It went up again last Did week. Did it go up again? He's hitting 543. He's hitting 543 <laughs> playing for an SEC team. Again, he's hitting 543. His on batting, base was, a, batting average. Batting not, average, right, yes. Right. His on base is 664. <laughs> His slugging is 947. He's got 29 walks. He's got 13 strikeouts. He's got almost as many home runs as strikeouts. And it's interesting because the track record of college outfielders atop the draft isn't great. I, I think it comes down to you know, whatever, like the pirates have the number one pick, right? Um, yep. The last time they had the number one pick, they, they cut a deal. They didn't make the pick based totally on talent. Um, you know, if Marcelo Meyer or Jordan Lawler would have taken what Henry Davis took, those guys go one, one and, and they wouldn't. So like who goes number one and who the best player in the draft might are, are, are two different things, but I still, you know, like we we're talking before, it's an interesting call, but like not, I mean, Paul Skeens is having a remarkable year, so is Dylan Cruz. So I, I like in most years, if a guy was doing what Paul Skeens is doing with the stuff he has, it'd be like, oh, like that guy's clearly number one. Like I think back to when Casey Mize was number one in 2018. Casey Mize wasn't dominating like this with this kind of stuff, but it was clear Casey Mize was going to be the number one pick. So m- most years, Paul Skeens would be like, oh, no question. But like Dylan Cruz is hitting 543. <laughs> so it's, it, it's going to be interesting. And like I said, you know, we haven't done enough to tell, you know, give a sneak preview of who's going to rank number one on our list when we update it by the end of the month. I, I kind of feel like Jonathan Cruz and Skeens will probably be one and two, and Wyatt Langford's probably going to be three. Um, I just don't know what order the top two guys will be in. That makes sense to me, all, all of what you said. And, and you know, we, we, it may be a coin flip, really. I mean, not really, but you know, in terms of who we put one and who we put two. Um, you know, if I were to decide right now, I'd probably go Cruz one, Skeens two. And as you pointed out, that doesn't necessarily mean that's how it'll happen on on draft day. It's been a while since we've had a top pitching, college pitching prospect dominate this much in college. Even Garrett Cole, when he was it, Strasburg. one guy. It was it, Strasburg, Strasburg right. numbers. Now, now in Strasburg's... <laughs> the crazy thing about Strasburg is Strasburg had you know, comparable stuff at a time when Strasburg's stuff relative to his peers was better than Skeen's stuff is relative to his peers because guys are throwing hard and spin the ball better. Right. Like, right. like Strasburg's going to be tough to ever top. But yeah, I mean. Like, but also he was pitching in the West Coast Conference, which like with all due respect, you know, he was dominant, but it was not the same level of of, of competition that Skeens is in right now in the SEC. It's just, it's not. So I think that, that figures into it as well. So I, you know, it'll be very interesting to see. I, I think, you know, you mentioned that you, know, when the pirates took Henry Davis, they did cut a deal. I, I don't think that they felt that there was a runaway number one. Now, maybe they still wouldn't have, they would have done what they, they did, but they really liked Henry Davis and he took the deal. I don't, I don't know that this will be the year to do that. This may be the year that they just take the best guy. We'll we'll sort of see. There's a long way to go between now and, and July, but uh, I, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what they do because there are two guys who are clearly the best players in the draft, and it's going to depend on what they feel uh, helps the organization best. Uh, you know, Both of those guys present as guys who won't take very long presumably, to get to the big leagues. Uh, Jim, you in talking about Cruz, you talked about you know college outfield draft prospects not having a great track record, putting some, some names on that. Uh, go back uh, 10 drafts. Uh, top, look at some the top-ranked college outfield prospect starting in 2014. Bradley Zimmer was number 10 in 2015. Andrew Benatendi was number eight. Number six in 2016 was Corey Ray. Uh, 27, uh, sorry, 2017, the top-ranked college outfield prospect was Jaron Kendall. Adam Hazley was also a, a top 10 uh, overall draft prospect. 2018, Travis Swaggerty. Uh, and then 2019, J.J. Blade and Hunter Bishop. 2020, the top-ranked guys uh, were Garrett Mitchell, and uh, and Heston Kerstad. So 
Yeah, I mean, kind so of. Paul Skeens to... is going number one, is what you're saying? <laughs> well, I've been I've been saying that to you guys uh, over the past few weeks, but that's just because he was on the podcast. I, I wasn't, but that was not actually uh, was not the point I was making. I was just uh... none of those guys hit five forty three though. But uh, but no, it's 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 interesting. I mean, I think the other thing that helps Cruz too is look. I mean, there's a lot of track record with this guy. Um, you know, you go back to the pandemic year in 2020 where he was one of the top high school bats in the country, and you know, for whatever reason, he wasn't going to go in the first round, I think, and or or he wasn't going to get paid what he wanted, so he pulled out of the draft. So I don't even think he was technically eligible at the end. But guys have been all over Dylan Cruz forever. I mean, I remember the first PDP league we ever went to, Jonathan, in 2019. Dylan Cruz mm-hmm. was one of the headline players at, yep. at the PDP league. So it's not like he's come out of nowhere and you're trying to figure out exactly what to make of him. Um but uh, yeah, he's hitting five forty. I, I noticed as I'm looking at college stats here, our, our, our you know Jacob Wilson, who we talked about, and you're going back to Desert Invitational. I don't know, he's slipping guys. He struck out five times already this year in 117 plate appearances. So it's like I think last year was like seven two forty three. Although he is hitting four sixty five, so he's within seventy eight points of the of the NCAA Division one batting lead right now. Yeah, you said you said none of those guys hit five four. What, what is it? Five forty three. Five forty three. Five forty three. Also, none of them were ranked number one overall, right? I mean, he he is, you know, higher ranked than any of the guys who have not quite panned out as we probably them the. To. I mean, and not just because of the five forty three, but I would think he's got to be the best pure hitter of that group. And it's not like his power is bad either, but he's he's probably the best hitter out of all those guys, which which also helps him. Okay, uh, let's wrap up by answering a question from the mailbag. This comes from uh, someone who we answered a question from recently. The Lizard King is my ace at Miami underscore or underscore nothing. Can you see PCA becoming a top 10 prospect by the time you guys update the rankings by all-star break. Well, first of all, we're not going to, we're not going to update the rankings by all-star break or do, God, do you that would want, kill us. To... No, that would, <laughs> I, I was thinking about it. Like the draft, <laughs> the draft won't even have happened. So yeah, we'll just update them. Yeah. But, uh, no, uh, by, by the trade deadline, we'll say, I don't even know PCA if that's correct, being, Jason, wait a minute. Well, around, around the re-rank. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Whatever. It's like it's stuck on the, semantics. let's, let's nail down the date right now. August 12th. Fine. Uh, do you see him as a top 10 prospect uh, at that point? Pete Crow Armstrong being PCA. I think I think he could because you know we've t- we've there's two factors. One, we've talked about how so many guys are going to graduate: Gunnar Henderson, Corbin Carroll. I'm just looking at our top our list: Jordan Walker, Anthony Volpe, maybe Grayson Rodriguez at some point. Like, there's going to be a lot of turnover on the list. And PCA had a ton of momentum last year. I mean, we all agree he's the best defensive prospect in the minor leagues. He's an 80s center fielder. As a guy who came out of high school and there are questions about how much impact he's going to have, he's gotten stronger. He's changed, changed his swing. He drove the ball a lot last year, which was essentially his pro debut because he lost 2020 in the pandemic and got hurt six games into 2021. My the, the one caveat I will throw out there, and we'll have to see how this plays out, is when he was in low A last year, he hit 354. He walked 22 times versus 33 strikeouts. When he got to high A, he was still a very good player, but he hit 287 and he struck out 69 times versus 14 walks in 63 games. And, you know, with him, I think he's ticketed for double A this year. If he doesn't tighten up that strike zone, he could get exploited a little bit. Like, like that's my big question about PCA right now is can he get better control of the strike zone after that five to one strikeout to walk ratio in high A? Um, so that's the biggest caveat, but I think from a tool standpoint and a performance standpoint, I think he could, I I think he could jump into the top 10. Yeah. I I think he, I think, I mean, I don't want to say he will because, you know, we need to sort of wait and see what happens, but I, I I agree with that. And I think he's going to make adjustments. He's always been a very good hitter. Maybe he, he got outside of his game plan a little bit when he got moved up. He's 21 for the entirety of this season. There's plenty of time. I, I think he's going to make adjustments, and I think we're <clears throat> I think we're going to look back and and look at that sort of expanded zone, higher strikeout rate, all that all that stuff that we saw in high A. That's going to be an aberration, and he's going to make adjustments and uh, and work his way into at least the conversation for the top ten. Yeah, if you, if you look ahead of him on the current list, 
there are six players currently in the big league. So you assume they graduate off. There are 22 players uh, left ahead of him. There are also guys at AAA who we would expect to see in the big leagues. Now, whether they get enough time to graduate by the time the, the list is re-ranked uh, is a question. But you have Francisco Alvarez, Grayson Rodriguez, uh, Ellie De La Cruz is... is Brett Beatty. Oh, yeah, Brett Beatty, mm. of course. Um, who else? Uh, eh. We got Kyle Harrison at AAA, Taj Bradley at AAA, Bobby Miller at AAA, and that that about exhausts the guys ahead of him. So that's another what half dozen. So you're looking at, you know, if all those guys were to graduate off, he'd be around what fifteen ish, uh, just just based on the current rankings. So he'd he'd be. Pretty close. Well, and I, I forgot. I mean, we tend to do a couple of adjustments, right? Um, before yeah, we do yeah. the full re-rank. So it might not even have to be the all-star break if, if PCA gets off to a super hot start. And, and he, he might have a better shot to get on there before we re-rank because once we do re-rank, there could be some some top draft picks that, go, that slot in ahead of him. Dylan Cruz, Paul Skeens. There you go. All right. Well, thanks very much uh, for that question. Uh, Lizard King is my ace. And uh, thanks to Noble Meyer for joining us. Thanks to everybody for listening. That's going to do it for this week's episode of the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening. See you next week.